reading this morning will be from John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35. That's John 13, verses 34 through 35. That's page 900 in the Pewback Bibles. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This morning we continue our series of We Walk Different. We walk different. I have to warn you, if I sound a little bit different this morning, it's because like many of you, I'm suffering from the terrible pollen that is falling all around us right now. And uh, so if I happen to end up in a sneezing fit, please bear with me. Uh, You asked the high school students earlier and that was the case a couple of times. So I apologize if that's in advance, if that's what takes place. As we think about this idea of we walk different, We live in a world that is so divided, so divided, so much hatred and vitriol that exists between different groups, different individuals, different entities. And as we look around the world and we wonder, why is it such as it is? I hope that the world looks at Christians and thinks there is something different about the way that they are walking. There is something different about who they are and and what makes up their being. And that's part of what this series is all about, to talk about the fact that we walk different. Last week, we boast and we glory in the cross. This week, as we think about loving one another, as the world is so divided and the world then looks at us and they see us loving one another and perhaps they wonder, how is it? that someone like Sister Mona or Sister Bernadette being from Africa, or some of our brethren being from South America, or even as we think about Dario being from Italy, and yes, even Zach, I think from Canada, we love each other. We love each other. How is it that these people from all over the world can come together and having different backgrounds and different ideas about certain things, different cultures, how is it that they can come together and love one another so much? And that's what I want us to talk about this morning. That is this command that we just considered from our scripture reading in John chapter 13, to love one another. We'll circle back around to our scripture reading here at, towards the end of the lesson. Our text this morning will come to, from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We'll get there here in just a minute. But as you think about... 1 Corinthians chapter 13, as you think about what the world thinks, it was said in 1706 by Jonathan Swift, the author of Gulliver's Travels, that we have just enough religion to make us hate, but not enough to make us love. And he was saying that about a particular group and about a particular political situation there in Ireland. But sometimes the world looks at us and they they wonder, these Christians, they claim to be so loving, but all I really see about them is not only maybe hatred towards the world, but also even hatred among themselves. And my brothers, my brothers and sisters, that ought not to be so. That ought not to be the case. Why is that the case sometimes, though, that we end up in those situations where we are at each other's throats, where even the religious world is so divided? Why is that the case? 
James tells us in James chapter one, verses, uh, James chapter four, verses one and two, that our divisions, our wars, our arguments, they come from our passions, our desires that are within us. That instead of ourselves putting ourselves aside and putting our own thoughts and our own wishes and desires aside, that we give credence to and we give preference to the things that we want instead of the things that what others might want. And so we end up with these divisions. We end up with this hatred. And so as we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul says, without love, no matter how much religion we might have, no matter how much knowledge of the scriptures we might have, without love, he says, I am nothing. I am nothing. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Before we get there, we're going to consider the end of chapter number 12. By the way, I, th- I thought it good as we thought about the idea of loving one another. We've, if you haven't been with us on Sunday nights, we have been learning in our Kids Sing program, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you look at your Bible, there's 13 verses there. And so far, our young people have learned 10 or 11 of those 13 verses already. It's pretty amazing. If you haven't witnessed that, I encourage you to come at 5 o'clock. Come and listen to them and hear them recite and sing almost all this chapter. We're hoping to maybe have it done by the end of this month. We can have this entire chapter. So I thought it'd be good for us to maybe stop and talk about this morning what exactly it is that we're singing. What do we mean by these things? Now let's let you in on a little secret about 1 Corinthians 13. You ready? It comes right between chapter 12 and chapter 14. All right? That sounds silly, but it's important because that tells us really what chapter 13 is all about. In chapter 12, what we find is that there were some divisions in the church at Corinth over who had what spiritual or miraculous gifts. Some had the ability to speak tongues. Some had the ability to, to expound upon certain knowledge. Some had the ability to work miracles and do things, healing powers. And so as a result of those things, people began to kind of be at each other's throats a little bit about who got to go win during what worship services and, and things of that nature. And so as a result, Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Sometimes it's translated, sometimes people believe that verse 31 ought to read, you are earnestly desiring the best gifts, but yet I show you a more excellent way. A more excellent way. As you think about what he's getting at here, all of these things are good. All of these things are given by God, and yet inwardly, those desires, those passions that are causing you to war with each other are without love, and as a result, there are these divisions. There are these problems that are existing between you. As you even get into chapter number 14, he continues on with the discussion about these miraculous gifts. And so right here in the middle in chapter 13 is this idea about love, but let me let you in on another secret. 1 Corinthians 13 isn't necessarily about marital love. You know, sometimes we read these verses in our marriage ceremonies, and that's not wrong. There are great principles to learn from this chapter. But again, where is this particular text found? It's in between chapter 12 and chapter 14, all about Christians, brethren, loving one another. It's not about raising and loving our children. It's not even about loving the world, but most specifically about loving one another. And so as we think about the world looking inwardly at us and they think, why are these Christians so divided? It would give us some very good things to think about as we consider 1 Corinthians 13 this morning about what love truly is. I want us to do three things with our lesson this morning. Number one, I want us to consider what love is not. What love is not. 
And then, after we've considered that, I want us to ask the question, what is love truly? What is love truly? And then finally, I want us to consider why love is so critical. Why love is so critical. So let's begin with our lesson this morning as we think about what love is not. Look in your Bibles at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and if, if you, in your mind, happen to accidentally start kind of singing along as we're reading this, that's okay, I understand. Sometimes that jingle, that, that tune gets stuck in your head a little bit. That's a good thing. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. What I want us to consider from the first half of these three verses is number one, love is not simply being able to impart knowledge to people. It's not simply to be able to impart knowledge to people. Now, I understand that that could be classified as part of love as we tell people the truth about certain things, and we can be loving in that, and it's not loving to withhold the truth. But what I want us to understand is that love is not simply being able to impart knowledge to people, because what does he say in verse number one? Even if I have the gift of tongues and the ability to, to, to pronounce these various things of knowledge, and, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, if I have not love, I am nothing. But particularly verse one and the first half of verse number two, the, the implication is, the idea idea is that I could be able to do all these things, and if I do not have love, when I do them, I am not being loving, even though I might be doing something good, even though I might be telling the truth. I may not be loving in what I am saying. A parallel passage for us to consider might be Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 15, but speaking the truth in love. There is an expectation that when we do so, we should be doing it in love. Consider with me three different areas in which we sometimes think that maybe telling the truth is loving, but maybe we don't do it in the best way possible. Maybe to the world, as we think about the division in the world right now over homosexuality and transgenderism and and our stance as Christians because of what the Bible says, that those things are sinful and those things are not right, those things are not consistent with Scripture. You know, sometimes we might be tempted as Christians to share, as I saw many years ago, a video of a farmer saying, come on down to the farm, I'll show you what it's all like. But I tell you this morning that that type of approach is probably not very loving. It's probably not the best approach to try to win people over. And so it might be truthful to say God created us a certain way, and you can even see this in the animal world, and that might be right to a degree, but the manner in which, with which it is delivered may not be loving. What about within the religious world amongst denominationalism? Sometimes we argue with those in the denominations. We, we, we go against them. We, we fight against them, not because necessarily we have so much love in our heart and we want to change their minds because we want them to be right, but simply because we just want to win an argument. How many times have you found yourself to be arguing about something just because you want to be right and win the argument? And so just because you have the truth, just because you have the answer, doesn't necessarily mean that you're being loving. And so simply being able to impart knowledge to people is not in and of itself loving, strictly speaking. What about among our brethren? Sometimes we say, we just, we just really get on to each other. Sometimes we come down hard on one another because, well, they ought to know better and we ought to just not excuse these types of things. And so 
Maybe sometimes we turn to Galatians chapter 4, verse 16, and we use the excuse, have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Sometimes we act that way. Well, I'm just telling the truth. I'm just telling like it is. And we become abrasive and abrupt and harsh instead of loving. So consider that love is not simply being able to impart knowledge, but it's also not simply being able to give or provide or affirm for people what they want or need. And so this is kind of the flip side of the coin. Whereas maybe those of us that are Christians might think that simply being loving is just simply telling the truth. Those of the world might think that being loving is simply being able to give or provide or affirm for people what they truly need. Notice chapter two, uh, chapter 13, verses two and three. Though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, I am nothing. The implication is, even if I do some really good things, if I'm not doing it with love, it's not really a loving action. Love truly is an action. It's not simply just a feeling, as we'll talk about here in just a little bit. And when we think about that, It's not just about feeling good about what we've done for other people so that we can appease our own desires and make our own hearts feel good, but rather thinking about the needs of others. As you think about 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we continue moving on through this passage, it's good for us to consider that even the social gospel, as it sometimes is called, is not necessarily loving. The social gospel is this. We need to be concerned about the societal ills. We need to be concerned about world hunger or economic inequality, or we need to be concerned about water quality for those that are impoverished, or we need to be concerned about racial tensions and all of these different things. And all those things are good, and all those things deserve our time and credence, but simply participating in making sure that people have food and water in and of itself is not strictly speaking loving. Because we can do those things according to verse 3, bestow all my goods to feed the, fo- the, feed the poor, and if I have not love, it profits me nothing. And here's the key. Without love, I am nothing, and it profits me nothing. In other words, it could be said in one sense, I'm not right with God. I'm not saved. If I'm doing all these good deeds, if I'm telling the truth, or if I'm affirming people and giving people things that they need or saying things that they want to hear, Even those things are not loving, and if I'm doing them without love, I may not be saved. Very likely that I'm not in a right relationship with God. So consider what love is not. Now, as we transition, I want us to think about 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse number 1. Earlier in the book, Paul says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Let's consider how is it that love builds up. Consider, secondly, what love is. What love is. Now, in order to do so, there are a lot of things packed in verses 4 through 7. We could spend a lot of time, really could spend a whole quarter of Bible class talking about each and every one of these things. But for our purposes this morning, I've tried to kind of categorize these things into four different categories. Number one, I want us to identify what love is by considering a loving Christian can be identified by, number one, what they exhibit what they exhibit. Notice verse number four, they are kind. They are kind. When we talk about what they exhibit, what we're talking about is their behavior, how they treat other people, how we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ. Remember, 
much of what we're going to do in this section is try to keep as much of it in context as possible and talk about our relationships among brethren and what they were dealing with in the first century among this, this Corinthian church of, of fighting about these different miraculous gifts. So they are kind, they're easy to be around. The word simply means to be mild. Sometimes we can be really tough to be around, can't we? We can be somebody who we just, you know, that person, I don't really want to be around them. They're, they're not mild. They're not kind. And so a loving Christian can be identified by the fact that they are kind, but also that they don't behave rudely or unseemly, that they're not abrupt and, and brash, that they don't come off so jaded and, and harshly, that they don't behave in a way that sounds, uh, th- that might be completely opposite of what Jesus is like. And so as we think about these first century Christians that are struggling with the war, the battle about these miraculous gifts, what Paul is saying, a loving Christian is loving to their brethren when they are kind, when they are not behaving rudely, when they're not at each other's throats about these things, be loving, be loving. A loving Christian can be identified by what they exhibit, but secondly, they can be identified by what they think about themselves, by what they think about themselves. Notice verse number four, they are not puffed up. The word simply means to be inflated. You know, we sometimes use the, the analogy or the metaphor in our English language uh, that, that their head is, you know, being blown up, that they're in, being inflated like a balloon. Their head is getting so big they might end up, you know, drifting off into the sky, right? Sometimes we need to pop their head, maybe, maybe a teenager's head once they, you know, score four touchdowns in a football game, they get a little bit proud about that, everything, and so they're puffed up. We puff ourselves up, we puff our chest out, right? When we are proud, a loving Christian can be identified by what they think about themselves. They don't think my miraculous gift makes me much better than that person over there because they have a, an inferior miraculous gift to mine. Or taking it into our 21st century mindset where the miraculous age has ceased, his ability to lead songs, not quite as good as mine or my ability to teach a class, or my ability to do this particular art or craft for my Bible class is much better than that person. I'm puffed up. A person that is like Christ, a person that is loving, does not think about themselves in this way. Secondly, they also don't parade themselves. You ever known somebody that all they ever do is talk about themselves? All they ever speak about are the things that they've done and the places they've been and the things that they've accomplished. They're parading themselves before you. These first century Christians, perhaps they were parading themselves around, I've got the best ability to speak tongues, or I've got the best ability to work these miracles, instead of recognizing that why God gave them those things was for his glory, and so that the word of the apostles and those that were teachers could be confirmed. They don't parade themselves. They don't seek their own. The word here in the original language has the idea of plotting or scheming. Have you ever known someone to plot or scheme a particular endeavor in order so that their way, their preference, their desire might be realized instead of someone else's? A loving Christian can be identified by the fact that they don't seek their own. They don't try to get the glory. They don't try to get the preference. They, as we'll talk about next, put others ahead of themselves. And so a loving Christian can be identified by what they think not only about themselves, but also what they think about others what they think about others. Notice in verse number six, they do not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoice in the truth. Now this one, 
might seem a little bit difficult and it may take a little bit of, of discernment or, or, or in your case, an interpretation of what this has to do with what we're talking about with regard to brethren loving one another. Because absolutely being a loving individual means not rejoicing in sin and not rejoicing or especially rejoicing in truth and that which is good. But what seems to be the case, perhaps, is what Paul is saying is don't rejoice when your brother falls into sin and therefore because he's fallen into sin, you look better and your miraculous ability looks better, but rather rejoice in the fact that their virtuous thing that they're doing is good for the Lord. Rejoice in the fact that they are remaining faithful to the Lord even when you might not be seen as prominently as they are. And so rejoice in the truth because God is being honored. God is being glorified by what they're doing. And so brethren, as sometimes we might be jealous of what someone else is in, in, uh, being able to be engaged in or, or the talent or skill that they might have, as we'll talk about here in a minute. Don't negate those things from those people because recognize that perhaps what they are doing is bringing glory to God. And we ought not to take that away from, from God's people. Also consider that they bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things. We've, we've included all of these together because I believe that for in large part, they're talking much about the same type of thing. We might say they bear all things in the sense that oftentimes they suffer the wrong. How many times has someone, a brother in Christ wronged you? Maybe they didn't know that they had done so, but they wronged you. And so bearing all things, suffering the wrong says, I'm not going to go to war with them over this particular thing. I'm going to endure. I'm going to suffer the wrong. Believe all things. The idea perhaps is to think the best, to give someone the benefit of a doubt in what they have done. Maybe they, you thought they wronged you, but maybe giving them the benefit of the doubt means that you think the best about what they've done and you just think, well, maybe they meant it a different way. Think about the world. This is not the way that the world acts. The world takes what other people say on face value and they immediately you know, get their hackles up and fight against what people are saying. But Christians, they believe the best about their brothers and sisters in Christ. They think, surely they didn't mean that. And even if they did, I'm going to suffer the wrong. They hope all things. They, they think the best about individuals and even endure all things. I'm going to do my very best to continue working alongside this person, even though we may not see eye to eye on every single little thing, even though we might brush shoulders every now and then on particular things and maybe we, we grind against each other a little bit on, on particular matters. I'm going to try to work alongside them as best as I can for the glory of God. Because a loving Christian can be identified by what they think about others. Even to the point, as you think about verse 5, they think no evil. ESV translates it this way, they are not resentful. They're not resentful. And said another way, they keep no record of wrongs. They keep no record of wrongs. You know, maybe you've suffered the wrong, but in the back of your mind, you're still really holding that wrong against them. That's not a loving Christian. As the world looks at us and they see that someone else in our, in our fellowship has wronged us and yet we still suffer the wrong and endure, we believe all things, we think no evil, the world is gonna see us and they're gonna be wondering, what is different about those people? And finally, as we think about what love is, a loving Christian can be identified by what they fight against. 
by what they fight against. As you look at verse number five, they are not easily provoked. They're not easily incited. They're not easily brought to be able to be at this high anger as we're going to talk about next. But they are individuals, as we talked about in the previous slide, that suffer the wrong and they, they, are, they fight against with all, every fiber of their being, the desire to want to retaliate. So many times that's our natural reaction, isn't it? When someone wrongs me, well, I'm going to wrong them back. That's not what Christians are called to be. They are long-suffering. The idea is they are slow to get angry. Slow to get angry. Could that be said of you? Are you a loving Christian that could be identified by the fact that they are slow to get angry at their brethren? Or does someone do something and at the drop of a hat, all of a sudden you're flying off the handle? A loving Christian does not get easily provoked. They are long-suffering and they do not envy. So we think about this, keeping it in context of 1 Corinthians 13 and 12 and 14. They do not desire the gifts that other people have because they recognize that even the gift that they've been given by God is for the glory of God. And it's all about him. It's not about me. And so love is about how we act, the things that we exhibit. It's about how we think about ourselves. It's about how we think about others. And it's about what we fight against. Now, so many good principles could be applied and thought about with regard to this idea. As you think about, some people have often said, you could, in application, ask yourself this question. In the place of love throughout all of 1 Corinthians 13, Many times it has been said, ask yourself this, the question, could you put your name there? Jordan suffers long and is kind. Joe does not envy. Ben does not parade himself. Could you put your name in place of those qualities and characteristics? Because if you can, then you could determine that you truly are a loving Christian. But if you are honest with yourself, so many of those things oftentimes are really hard to attribute to our character. Those are things we need to work on. But you know who was perfect in those things? Our Lord and Savior. As you think about Philippians chapter number two, and what we think about with regard to what he's done, and Jesus being the perfect example, we could go through that list of, of all the things that he is, but let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He was not easily provoked. He was kind. He was someone who bared all things, believed all things, hoped all things, endured all things. Jesus was the perfect example, the perfect manifestation of what being a loving individual is. Finally, this morning, I want us to think about why love is so critical. Why love is so critical. In verse number eight, Paul says, love never fails. We won't take the time to read all the parts in between. We'll talk about them briefly. But then as you get to verse number 13, and now abide faith, hope, love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Now why is that? Some have said that because in eternity, our faith will be sight. And our hope will be realized 
but our love will not cease because we will be in the presence of our Father and we will still continue to love him. Our faith, trusting in what we've never seen before in heaven and seeing God in, in physical form in that sense, it will be realized, it will be there with him. Our hope will be manifested, it will be realized in the sense that there we are on that day, but love will never fail. But also within this context of verses eight through 13 is the idea of the miraculous gifts having come to their end in the first century. Why was that the case? Well, because the miraculous gifts, according to Mark chapter 16, verse 24, were for the purpose of confirming the word. And once the word of God was completed in totality and we had our entire revealed word of God, scriptures given to us, we were no longer in need of those miraculous gifts to confirm what people were saying was actually from God. And so what's the, what's the lesson for us in this? So we think about, so we've just talked about because it never fails, it will never end. There's also something to consider with regard to why love is so critical. Maybe, maybe you've sometimes wondered if you're at a disadvantage because you don't have miraculous gifts at your disposal today. You think, man, if I could just work a miracle, every single person in my street would know all about Jesus and they would be convinced because I could perform these miracles and I would be baptizing people left and right. Maybe sometimes you feel like you're at a disadvantage. Well, you shouldn't feel that way because the power is in the word of God and we have the fully revealed word of God. But I also submit to you this morning, there's something else to be thought about here. That love is so critical because as we get back to our scripture reading from this morning, it's critical because it instructs the world about us. Turn your Bibles back to John chapter 13 as we begin to wind down our lesson this morning. John chapter number 13 as you think about what was read and, and considering the context of what happened here in this particular section of scripture, remember Jesus washes the, the feet of his apostles. And in John chapter 13, after, uh, after Judas leaves the room, he says in verse number uh, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, by the way that you love one another, shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So love is so critical because it never fails, but it's also critical because it instructs the world about us. The implication is that when the world looks at us, though we don't have miraculous gifts today to maybe confirm the word, love and the way that we treat one another in one sense or another is actually a confirmatory thing of the word. The fact that we have the word, the fact that we know God, the fact that we are like our God, as we're going to talk about in a second. When we love one another, the world looks at us and they wonder about us. They think, those people, there's something different about them and they must know God. Now, I want you to notice what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say that they will know you by the way that you dress. You think about maybe the clothes that the Pharisees would have worn and the long tassels and the garments and all the different types of things on their body that would have been a, uh, symbolic of how great they were in their minds. He says, he doesn't say, the Lord will know you that you're my disciples by the way that you dress. They won't know you also by the ritualistic practices that you're engaged in. They won't know you by the way that you have scriptures bound to your forehead or how many scriptures you can quote or memorize. And all those things are, are maybe worthwhile of our pondering and thinking about as we'll talk about in a second. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, people will know you're my disciples by the love that you have for one another. You know, sometimes we turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse number 9, and we like to quote, you know, we are a peculiar people. And we embrace that, right? We're, we're peculiar 
By the way, that King James, I think, is the only way that translates it that, but let's, let's run with it. Let's say we're peculiar. What makes us so peculiar? Is it the fact that we worship without instruments? Well, yeah. In a sense, we're different in that way, but is that what really wins the non-believer over to us? Initially, no. They look at our love and they look at us and they think those people really seem to know God. Is it how many scriptures we can quote? Maybe not. Maybe they don't even believe in the scriptures, but maybe they're initially attracted to our love. And so our love is so critical because it instructs the world about us and who we are and the fact that there is something different about us and that we must know God. But finally, because it makes us look like our father, Love is so critical because it makes us look like our Father. Turn the page a few times to John chapter 17 as Jesus prays this high priestly prayer. Look at verses 20 through 23. Jesus praying for all of us as disciples, loving one another, says this, I do not pray for these alone, talking about his apostles, but also for those who will believe in me, talking about us through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfect, may may be perfect in one. And that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. When we love each other, we look like our God. God the Father loving the Son. The Son loving the Spirit, the Spirit loving the Father, and vice versa, the Godhead loving each other in that sense. And when we love that way, love is so critical because we look like our God in that way. Wearsby said it this way, one of the things, kind of summing up this entire lesson, one of the things that most impresses the world is the way Christians love each other and live together in harmony. The lost world cannot see God, but they can see Christians. And what they see in us is what they will believe about God. If they see love and unity, they will believe that God is love. If they see hatred and division, they will reject the message of the gospel many times. Some Christians are prosecuting attorneys and judges instead of faithful witnesses. And this only turns lost sinners away from the Savior. Do not underestimate, do not undervalue how important, how critical our love for one another is. We are not just assembling together on the Lord's day only to worship God, but that rather God also has made us part of a family to live together and to serve God together and to go through this life together. We ought to be loving one another more, having better relationships with one another, being with one another more often, not just being here just together, just to check off the box and being in the pew, but rather that we should love one another as though we are our very own flesh and blood. Perhaps this morning you're struggling with how much you love the brethren. Maybe you're struggling with just being a loving Christian in general. Ask for help. Get involved. Form relationships with other people in the church. I I trust, I believe, I know that you will be better for it. Perhaps you're not a Christian this morning and what we've been talking about this morning, maybe kind of attracts you to God because, well, how do these people from all these different walks of life come to love one another. 
and you want to know more about that, come down as we'll sing a song here in just a minute. Come down to the front row and we'll talk to you. We'll set up a Bible study. We'll share with you the good news of what Jesus has done so that you can come to know God more fully. If there's anything that we can do for you this morning, we ask that you come as together as we stand and as we sing.